0: Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 8, Psalm 8, if you're using one of the blue chair Bibles, it's on page 450, and while you're turning there, Tom asked me to remind all the people helping with the grills, you get to leave the sermon about five minutes early, so that's your gift for volunteering to grill today, so you know who you are, and uh, your gift is a shorter sermon. Um, In Psalm 8, one of the topics that is covered, and it's, it's pretty obvious early on, is, is the idea of worship. And Christians are people who worship God. That's pretty basic to who we are. But a lot of times when things are basic, they are assumed. And so we very quickly and very easily use words like praising God, worshiping God, bringing glory to God. We have worship and praise bands and worship services. Some churches even have worship pastors. But like many common ideas in our faith, there can be a familiarity that breeds a lack of intentionality and thought. And we assume we know how to do things. We assume this is how things are done. And so as we look at Psalm A, where it talks about this topic of worship, I want us to slow down our brains. I want us to slow down our hearts and really refresh our hearts and our minds as to why we worship and how we should worship and who we worship. Worship is something I think that we can go through the motions if we move too quickly. Or we can limit it. We can limit it to certain aspects of worship. Or we can limit it to certain aspects of experience. One of the common problems is that we limit worship to singing. Singing is a huge part of worship, but it's more than that. It's a bigger category. Or we limit our understanding of worship to how we feel when we do it. Now again, that's a big part of it. So that's one of the amazing things about Christianity, is it's not only knowledge, it's not only a philosophy, it is an experience. One of the great experiences we have is communion. Communion. We experience communion. You are supposed to have emotions in your worship, but too often we limit worship to that. And I want us to use this morning, I want us to use psalmate to expand and deepen our understanding and therefore our experience of worship in its various forms. So this morning, our big idea, if you're following along in the outline provided in your bulletin, is this. That worship is celebrating God's glory as the King who is our Savior. So let's jump right into Psalm 8, verse 1. You'll see a very familiar refrain that begins this psalm and marks it as a call to worship. The first half of Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, I want us, again, we need to slow down. It'd be really quick, especially if we all remember the song we sang earlier, grew up singing that song. It'd be really quick to move over that. But let's slow down and see what that verse says, because that's going to lay a foundation for the rest of our time. So the first thing we see, O oh Lord, our Lord. Worship is directed to God. Again, we would assume we all know that, but we need to refresh ourselves again. If using the Blue Chair Bible, you'll notice that the lords are spelled a little differently. The first one in all caps is the way that we write in English of talking about the Lord of Israel, the Lord of the Bible, as opposed to the other gods of the time. And then our Lord in the capital, but lowercase, is more of a title. King, ruler. So our God is the king. And he is, his name, meaning what he is and who he is and what he does, is majestic. Now let's slow down there. I know we don't often use majestic in our common speech. So what is that saying? Again, if we're, we're used to this verse, we can just skip right over that. But what does majestic mean? Majestic refers to his glory, his holiness, his power, and his kingly rule. So the Lord, our God, is the king. And he is kingly and glorious in all that he is and all that he does. And where is he the king? Not just in his country, not just in political boundaries, but in all the earth. See, worship begins with a proper object of worship if you're worshiping the wrong thing or the wrong person, you're, you can't get anything right because that's the first thing. And so our worship is wholly directed to God as the king of the universe, as our king, the one who's in relationship and covenant with us. This chorus is going to be repeated at the end. This is how David begins this psalm and ends this psalm. Now, by the end, I want us to have deepened our understanding of it so that we can really sing it out. But we need to begin with who God is and what he has done and his glory and his majesty and his kingliness. So let's look now further at a further description of that majesty. So look, point number two in your outline there, the glory of God in victory. So let's look at the second part of verse one into verse two. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now some of the bits of these verses are hard to understand, but the main idea is this. God... Cannot be defeated. God claims and exacts victory over all of his enemies. And he is not just your average God. He is not just your average king. He is enthroned, not in the heavens, above the heavens. He is the king of every part of the universe. And he has complete and total victory over his enemies, and none can defeat him. So then we get to verse 2. Out of the mouths of babies and infants you have established strength. Well, what does that mean? Now, I know that there is a great power in the crying of children. Believe me, I experience that on a regular basis. But that's not what's being talked about here. It's also not that the enemies are so weak that they can be overcome by children. That would be to misunderstand it. The idea here is that God is so strong and so great that the crying of children, he causes it to overcome his enemies. God takes the weak and humbles the proud. Let me read to you quote from one scholar about this imagery. says this, It is certainly strange imagery to say that children's words build a stronghold that deters God's enemies. Yet that is precisely what the passage says. God takes these babblings and turns them into a stronghold that silences his enemies in their rebellion against him. It shows that God takes the weakest of all things and makes something great and strong from it. One other scholar writes this The sound of opposition is silenced by the babbling and chatter of children. What a contrast. What a king. And so we see here in these verses, again, a building of a foundation upon which we engage in worship. And the first block in that foundation is the power and the victory that God claims over his enemies and that he cannot and will not be defeated. Next, the next block that is the foundation of our worship is found in verses 3 to 4. Again, if you're following along in your outlines there, point 3, the glory of God in creation. Follow along as I read verses 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? The next block in this foundation of worship is the grandeur and the immensity of creation. Now, in particular, David talks about the moon and the stars which God has set in place. And again, it, it's familiar language and so it's easy to skip over that. But I want us to dwell on the fact that God has placed every single star in its place. A thing that's helpful to me is to remember while the stars can look like tiny bits in the sky. The fact that the sheer number of stars, but on top of that the sheer size of the star. Let me give you something that I find helpful. I want you to think of how big the world is. Our planet. Okay, there are set, about 7 billion people on this planet, and we still have Montana, which is relatively not full. So, 7 billion people, and I'm told, and this guy was from Texas, so I don't know if I can trust him. But he said that everybody in the world could fit in Texas. Now, I don't know if everyone would like being in Texas, but he said, and then again, seemed like a reliable source for the most part. So we live on a giant planet. And the immense, we, we see it around us in the mountains and in the ocean, the immensity of our world. Some estimate, and and from what I found in my research, this is reliable. Some estimate that you can fit over one million Earths into our sun, our star. And I also found that our star isn't that big compared to other ones. (laughs) See, when we slow down, we understand the immensity of just how big creation is and how numerous creation is. Sometimes when I'm trying to be a good parent, I try to distract my kids by telling them to count things that there's no way they could count. So I point at a field of grass and I say, how many blades of grass are there? Because I'm trying to stall for a few minutes. We do the same thing with the stars. You You can't even count them all. And they are immense and huge and God placed every single one right where it's supposed to be. We see the immensity of God. And the natural question out of that is verse four. The God who created the immensity of of creation, and an immensity that we can barely fathom. The psalmist asks a question What is man that you are mindful of him, and the Son of Man that you care for him? Compared to the immensity of creation, why would you care about me? The assumption in the question is that he, in fact, does care about each and every one of us. The God who placed the trillions of immense stars loves you. Do you see how both are foundations for our worship of God? That everything that exists is there by his power, and he has immense power that we can place our trust in him, but at the same time, that giant God loves me and loves you. It humbles us and gives us a context to really, truly understand the deep love that God has for each and every one of us. We worship God because of his great power, but a great power that shows itself to us in love and care. And so he can provide for your needs. And he can love you. The next part of this foundation comes in this idea of kingship. So let's look, turn to verses 5 to 8 of Psalm 8. This is referring to man in general. In verse 5, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. This, this, this person, you and I, who compared to the immensity of creation are little ants. <laughs> we've been not only cared for, but we've been crowned With glory and honor, you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen and all beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Now, in dealing with verses five to eight, it's going to point us backwards and it's going to point us forwards in your Bible. Verses 5 to 8 first points us back to Genesis chapter 1. Let me read you from Genesis chapter 1 and to see if it reminds you of anything. Hint, it should. Okay? Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Psalm 8 picks up on the language of Genesis 1 in pointing us to not only does God care for us individually, but he has made us his representatives. So here's the picture. God is the king of all the universe and the creator of all the universe, and he has made us his kingly representatives. As he rules over the universe, he has placed us here. One of the things we are to do is sort of... Be his hands and feet of ruling over creation. And so, verse 6, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you've put all things under his feet. See, how does that relate to worship, though? Number one, it shows us that one of the reasons God created this world was so that we would have a place to worship him. So the things that you do on this earth is worship to God because that's what he put you there to do. God has given each of us jobs and tasks and he's given us as a whole work to do on his behalf and when we do that that is worship to him. And so we we mimic his kingliness By doing what he would do, and that is worship to him. And so we have to ask ourselves what does it mean to rule as God rules? We see God care for his creation. We then are to care for his creations as he would. We have dominion as an act of worship to God. So what you do in your job, what you do during the week, not just what you do in the service on Sunday, is done for his glory because it's what he put you here to do. Psalm 8 also points us forward. So Psalm 8 points us back to Genesis 1, but Psalm 8 points us to the New Testament. Psalm 8 is quoted one place in the New Testament, and that is Hebrews chapter 2. So Psalm 8 shows us how we should live, but like the rest of the Psalms, it also shows us, it also prepares us for Jesus. Jesus. So in Psalm 2, this is starting in verse, or Hebrews 2, verses 6 to 9, it says this, It has been testified somewhere, what is man, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him? You made him a little, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Okay, so he quoted Psalm 8 there. So here's what the writer of Hebrews Tells us this means. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. He's talking about Jesus. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a while was made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for every one. But we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels. Uh, Sorry, I I copied that twice. (laughs) Let me read verse nine again, and I promise I won't mess it up. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Hebrews understands that Psalm 8 was pointing forward to Jesus, to a time when God became man, and not just to show us how to be a king, but to be a savior. And the fact that He receives his glory and honor not from these mighty acts of political kingliness but through his death on the cross. And we see another foundation of worship. We see another block upon which we experience true worship of God is that it is centrally found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. the one who was made a little lower than the angels and died as our substitute and as our king. The reign of Jesus that Psalm 18 points to is not a political ruler. As we saw in the time of Jesus, not just someone who could kick the Romans out of the country of Israel, but as the king who died for you and for me. One thing I find interesting about the connection that Hebrews makes is that sometimes we talk about Jesus as savior and king, and sometimes we separate those two. But here in the text, they are brought together in that Jesus' reign as king is not won through a military victory, but through dying for sinners. And again, this is what, this is the truth that our worship is built upon. That Christ died for sinners. And this leads us back right to where we started. Look at verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I can't help but experience this psalm differently when reading through it, that there is a movement where, yeah, we understand worship in verse one, but as we work through who God is and what he has done, when we truly understand that, it, it's as if the second chorus needs to be louder. <laughs> I think one of our problems today is that we stop at verse one. Because we know verse 1, we're familiar with verse 1. And it's faster to only read one verse instead of 9. But, but when we experience worship, whether it's in prayer, whether it's in song, whether it's in the Lord's Supper, as we'll participate in a few minutes here, we need to work through all the verses. <coughs> Sometimes I think we're too quick to worship in our hearts. And we don't prepare our hearts because we don't feel like we need the foundation. Let me share an example where I've really seen this in my life. One of the songs that will always sort of be one of my favorites is the song Before the Throne. When we sing before the throne of God above. I sang a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to sing it today. But the reason that that song will always stick with me is because when I first heard it, I was also studying through the book of Hebrews. I was taking a class, semester class, on just the book of Hebrews, and so Hebrews was in my mind. And when you read the lyrics of that song, there are a lot of commonalities with the book of Hebrews. That song will always be a part of my worship life because I always connect it with the text of Hebrews. And as I'm singing about the great high priest whose name is Love, I think about the truth of Jesus as our great and sympathetic high priest. And that's what we need to do. We need to slow down our minds and we need to connect what we sing and what we pray and what we experience with God's word, or else or else after a while the, the worship will be empty and flat. And so Psalm eight is a great tool, a great template to remind ourselves of the greatness and holiness of God, of his power and his victory and his giving us life, and the fact that he sent his son to die, and then we can say, "O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father God, as Psalm 8 calls us to worship you in your kingliness and your glory, that we would enter into worship with sincere hearts based on the truth of your word. That as we sing and as we pray and as we practice the ordinances, that we would not do so untethered from the truth of your word, that we would not rely on our emotions and circumstances to be the foundation of our worship of you, but that through the truth of your word that we would experience you in those times of worship that we would experience you in the worship of obedience, of everyday obedience, and that as we do sing and pray and gather as a corporate family on Sunday morning, that we would not assume worship, but that we would build off of the foundation of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. and that we would worship you and that we would proclaim together and with all of those who have followed you over the years, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen. This time I want to invite...